Hear now God's holy word as we continue our study in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 5. Hear the words of our Savior Jesus. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and by the spirit who inspired it, the spirit who preserved it, please, by that same spirit, guide us into truth. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our nearest kinsman. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Is it lawful to leave a broken covenant or are we obligated to remain in covenant with covenant breakers? I want to repeat that so you can process that and think about that. Is it lawful to leave a broken covenant or are we obligated to remain in covenant with covenant breakers? Let's consider an example Let's suppose that you and I go into business together selling watermelons because you have the land and the experience and the ability to produce a fantastic watermelon crop. And I own trucks that can take the watermelons to market. And I also have connections at all the local grocery stores. And so we agree that you're going to handle production and I'm going to handle all the marketing and the distribution. And we draw up a contract. We put our thoughts on paper and we detail how we're going to pay our expenses, how we're going to split up the profits. The first season goes really well. We, do, we, we both do wonderfully. There's great produce, great sales. We both make a little bit of money. We're able to invest it back into our equipment. We did good. The first season was a success. The second growing season comes and things start off normally, but when it comes time for you to get paid, you don't see any money. You ask me about it, and I hem and haw, I change the subject, I say, well, you're, you'll have it soon, but days go by, and you still aren't getting paid. And then you find out from somebody else that I took all of the profits, I took the revenue that we were supposed to divide, and I, I took it to the casino, and I bet it all on black. I put it all on the roulette wheel and lost all of it. And then in order to catch up, I, I gambled away the titles to my, to my trucks. And now I'm scrambling to pay you what I owe you, but I can't even cover my basic living expenses and I have no ability to fulfill my end of the bargain. I have broken our contract and now I can't keep it even if I wanted to. Now, okay, this is just an illustration. I would never do this to you. If we ever get in the watermelon business together, I'm never going to take our money to the casino. Trust me. How about we just not go into watermelon business together and we'll save ourselves that trouble? But this is just an example, just an example. If that happens, are you obligated to remain in partnership with me? I have an obligation to you, absolutely. I must pay you back at least what I owe you in addition to any lost opportunity costs on your end. You may choose to forgive me. You may choose to let it go. Maybe out of the goodness of your heart, 
you help me rebuild. You say, well, I did put some money back and this was a terrible mistake and uh, I'm, I'm gonna get you a truck and we're gonna try to repay it this way. Or you may just decide that you don't trust me anymore. The contract has been broken. I did not keep my side of the bargain and you are free to look for other business partners. Would we all agree that that's pretty much how this should work? This is how it should go. I think we would agree that in cases like this, when a covenant has been broken, the innocent party is free. They are free to forgive. You may choose to forgive, give it a second shot, but if you choose not to keep the partnership, you are not in sin. I would think we would agree with that, but does, does God's law support this understanding? Is it lawful to leave a broken covenant? There are many places in scripture and places in God's law which deal directly with keeping your oaths. Psalm 15 uh, talks about the one who works righteousness is the one who swears to his own hurt and changes not. To swear to your own hurt means that if I make a promise to you, if I make a pledge, if I make an oath to you, we're going to do this thing. Even if another better opportunity comes along that would benefit me more, I'm going to keep my promise to you, this happens in social situations a lot, doesn't it? You make plans with somebody and then another more fun opportunity comes along and you think, oh, if I could only cancel that, if I could get out of that, I could do this other thing. But the righteous man swears to his own hurt and says, you know what? I made a pledge. I made a covenant. I made a promise. I'm going to do this thing and uh, I'll, let, I'll let the Lord sort it out. Or that if I make a promise to you that I'm going to deliver something uh, for a certain price or if I'm going to do work within certain conditions, that I keep that promise. Even if things on my end change, if things have, if my prices have changed or, or whatever, something, uh, some mitigating circumstances come up, I must keep my word to you. Now, I can appeal to you. I can appeal and say, look, I am really over a barrel here. I thought I could uh, accomplish this for this price, but the, the, the price of the materials has gone up. Can you, can you give me a break? Can we work this out together? And you're free to negotiate. But the, the righteous swears to his own hurt and changes not. We make promises and we keep them. There's other passages like Numbers 30, where the Lord says, when you bind yourself in agreement, keep your word. However, bad things happen and unpredictable events occur. And so we have instruction like Exodus 22 that tells us what to do if you're in charge of your brother's property and someone steals it or fire destroys it, or if you borrow his working animal and it, it wanders off or it dies, what do you do then? Well, there are ways of determining your liability. Were you supposed to put it in a pen and you didn't? Um, did you leave it exposed? Did you not feed it? Is that why it died? Or did it just die because it had a disease that nobody knew about? There are all kinds of ways to determine, were you liable? How do we restore your brother's property in that event? What happens when you're negligent? What happens when you fail to keep your promises? The law gives us methods of dealing with all kinds of circumstances. However, there is no obligation to enter back into an agreement or to create a new agreement with someone who has stolen from you. There's no obligation to enter into an agreement with someone who has not kept his pledge to you. And throughout the Old Testament, we see how the Lord addresses those who break covenant with him. 
God enters into contracts. God enters into covenants with his people. He binds himself to his people. He makes promises to his people. He obligates himself to his people to provide for them an abundance of provision and protection. He says, I'm going to open up heaven and I'm going to pour out my blessings on you. But in return, he requires obedience from his people. He requires of them. He says, you must not go after other gods. Don't act like the other nations. Commit yourselves to me the way I have committed myself to you. That is how this arrangement works. This is how covenants work. But when his people repeatedly, high-handedly, arrogantly break his gracious covenant, and then he calls them to turn from their idolatry, to repent, to come back to covenant faithfulness. And then in response to that, they double down on their wickedness. At a certain point, Yahweh considers himself no longer obligated to provide the blessings of the covenant to those who have broken it. He instead is obligated to pour out the curses of covenant breaking. In Leviticus 26, and Deuteronomy 28, we have these lists of the promises and the blessings of the covenant if we keep covenant, if we obey. And then we have the curses of covenant breaking in both places. God says in Leviticus, for example, he says, if you do not obey me, if you do not observe all these commandments, if you despise my statutes, if your soul abhors my judgments so that you do not perform all my commandments, but break my covenant, I also will do this to you. I will appoint terror over you. You will sow your seed in vain. I will set my face against you and you shall be defeated by your enemies. And then all kinds of plagues and deprivations and desolations will follow. In Jeremiah 34, the Lord speaks about those who have transgressed his covenant he says, he describes them as those who have not performed the words of the covenant that they have made before me. He says, I will give them over to the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life. I am no longer your protector. I'm no longer you're going to keep you from this danger. I'm turning you over to your enemies because you have broken covenant with me. I am, am not, I'm not keeping you. I'm not protecting you. In Hosea, where God compares covenant breaking and idolatry to harlotry and spiritual adultery, God puts it most bluntly. He says to Israel, you are not my people and I will not be your God. And then of course, what we see is that when Assyria wipes out the Northern kingdom of Israel, it's gone and it never comes back. There is, there is nothing remaining of those 10 tribes of Northern Israel. It goes away. When Israel is put away, it never comes back. And so in Hosea and other places in the Bible, God uses the language of the marriage covenant to describe his relationship to his people. In Isaiah 54, he says, your maker is your husband. He considers himself the groom and Israel is his bride. And so when Israel is unfaithful, he calls it adultery. When Israel goes after idols, it's fornication, it's harlotry, it's prostitution. And then because of her prostitution and adultery, he ultimately divorces her for her covenant breaking. 
In Jeremiah 3, Yahweh says, have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree and there played the harlot. And I said, after she had done all these things, return to me, but she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce because of her casual harlotry that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. God gives Israel a certificate of divorce. God divorces Israel. He considers the covenant is broken and he is no longer bound to it. You see, Yahweh has bound himself to his people in covenant. He commits himself to them. He keeps his promises. And yet, when they depart, when they break the covenant and don't come back after many opportunities to be restored, at some point, he divorces them. He recognizes that the bonds of the covenant have been broken and he is no longer bound to them. So if we ask the question again, is it lawful to leave a broken covenant? Or are we obligated to remain in covenant with with covenant breakers forever? I think we see the answer to that. God himself has answered that question in dealing with his covenant breaking people. When the covenant is broken, God is not bound. God is free. In our text today, in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus addresses that most intimate human contract, that most intimate human covenant that exists, the covenant of marriage. Marriage makes up the very fabric of society. And Jesus is speaking into a time, into a context in history, where as we studied last week, the world was witnessing the almost total breakup of the institution of marriage, the collapse of the home. We studied the Greeks and the Romans, and we saw how terrible things were there. But even among the Jews, especially among those who were responsible for rightly handling God's law, there was this broad permissiveness for casual divorce. They mishandled Deuteronomy 24, where Moses addresses divorce. And there was this popular position among rabbis that just about any complaint that a man had against his wife was grounds for divorce. If she burned the food, if she uh, were loud or boisterous, if she went out without her head uncovered, all of these are listed. All these are codified. If he even found uh, pleasure and delight in another woman more than his wife, he could divorce her and marry again. That was the position. That was the popular position in the time of Jesus when he speaks. In contrast to this, Jesus is calling his followers to a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. He exposes the behaviors of these religious elites and and displays it as it's no righteousness at all. They, They are not keepers of the law. They are evaders of the law. They are despisers of the law. Don't ever think that the Pharisees, oh, they just took the law a little too far. That's not what Jesus accuses them. That's not how Jesus condemns them or puts woes on them. He, he says, you haven't loved my law at all. You, you, haven't, you haven't gone too far. You haven't gone far enough. You have despised my law. And that's the context that Jesus is speaking to. And last week we heard Jesus say that at the heart of adultery, the heart of fornication is the nurturing of lustful thoughts 
and desires which lead to the outward breaking of the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. So he said, Jesus said, take firm, decisive action against the sin of lust. Don't be passive, uh, deliberately and with haste, cut off every avenue for sin. Whatever is providing an occasion for lust, whatever you're using to stoke the fires of lust, remove it far from you. Get rid of it. That's what he said in our study last week. Now he turns to rebuke this casual cultural acceptance of divorce, which is the downstream effect of the lust that begins in their hearts. Because they have not exercised self-discipline over their lusts, they are unraveling the fabric of society. They are obliterating the home through casual, frivolous divorces. So Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 24. It's the passage that's at the center of this controversy in Jewish scholarship at the time that everybody's debating over. Well, Jesus comes right out and quotes it about the provisions of divorce in God's law, the very section that's misapplied by the scribes. He says in verse 31, furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Well, that's straight out of Deuteronomy. That's what Moses says. And then he addresses their misunderstanding of that. A just cause, a lawful cause for divorce, according to God's word, is not anything that makes you unhappy. It's not anything that displeases you. Jesus knows his father's law. And so he can speak to this with authority. He can, he can explain what the law says. So in verse 32, Jesus says, I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. So Jesus says there is only one just and lawful cause for divorce, and that is covenant breaking sin. But this proliferation of unlawful divorces pollutes the land with adultery. When there's no lawful cause for divorce and the man and woman depart and then get remarried, they depart because they just got tired of each other or they had problems they just didn't feel like facing or they were just bored and they wanted a, a little bit of excitement. So the man and woman depart and then they remarry. Jesus says they're now creating these new adulterous relationships. And a man who sends away his wife for no reason makes his wife an adulteress. If she remarries, he's sinful. He's guilty for sending her away and putting her in that position. And the man who marries a woman in that circumstance, he becomes an adulterer himself. These serial unions and separations and reunions, this creates serious pain and conflict, and chaos. Divorces are never smooth. They're never simple. They are a violent ripping apart of that one flesh relationship. It's a tearing apart of something that God has joined together. And this violence leaves damaged lives in the aftermath. The man is damaged. The woman is damaged. Children suffer. Family and friends are left hurt and confused. So divorce is never anything to take lightly. Marriage was created by God 
to be a lifelong covenanted partnership. It is a purposeful entangling of lives, the entangling of two lives together to live a single life story together through work and play, through eating and sleeping, through making babies and raising babies. It's, it's so tightly knit together that it is impossible to pull it apart. That is how marriage was designed, and that was the intention of God's design. And so Jesus uses this firm and forceful language to call his people to purity. He calls them to marital fidelity. That's the thrust of his teaching here, to submit yourself to God's law in such a way that keeps divorce from happening. And yet, in the midst of this, he still makes provision for lawful divorce. Because of sin, because of the hardness of our hearts, God permits marriages to end for the protection of those who are sinned against. It is lawful to leave a broken covenant. Even in this instruction, which is so intently focused on the preservation of marriage, there is still, Jesus still makes this qualification. Though I think it's often misread and misunderstood, especially if we just read these two verses in isolation from the rest of the Bible. There's a certain reading of this that concludes that the only kind of covenant breaking in view is outright physical adultery. That's the only thing that can end a marriage and that married people must put up with all kinds of other sins against the marriage, other sins against the covenant and covenant breaking behavior. So some would say that you, you must stay with someone who is actively, deliberately, continually breaking the covenant who won't repent and you just, you just have to put up with it. Or that even if you are sinned against in marriage by an adulterous spouse, even if you are abandoned, for example, you may never remarry or else you're an adulterer. That's what Jesus says. They think we might suppose. But this is not all the Bible has to say about marriage. It's not all the Bible has to say about covenant keeping. And so we must understand both what Jesus says here and how this fits into the whole counsel of Scripture. Jesus is the Word, and the whole Bible is His Word, and so He doesn't contradict Himself, and there are no contradictions. We have to harmonize this with other instruction and make sure that we're understanding it correctly. One helpful consideration is that the word that Jesus uses in verse 32, which is translated in my translation as sexual immorality, it may be translated in your English translation as adultery. Um, I don't know. One may have fornication. Um, that word, uh, which Jesus says, I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality, that word sexual immorality is the Greek word pornea, which ought to sound familiar to you. We're English derivatives of that word. That word pornea can refer to a range of covenant-breaking sins, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, incest, all of the sexual abominations listed in Leviticus, some which are almost unspeakable but are realities in a fallen world. All of those are under pornea. And this word is often a metaphor for the worship of idols. I saw just a few minutes ago how God uses the language of marital fidelity to speak of keeping covenant with him. So the word pornea is also used to describe idol worship. In the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, which we call the Septuagint, you may have run across that word before, maybe even have one, 
It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures that was in use in Jesus' time. When it comes to Leviticus 20, it's the same word that's used. Pornea is used referring to all those who prostitute themselves to commit harlotry with the false god Molech, as well as those who prostitute themselves with mediums and familiar spirits. That word prostitute is the word pornea, and it's the same word that Jesus uses. It's the same concept. Here's what, here's what this word pulls together. Both the defilement of idolatry and the defilement of extramarital sexual activity, both of these are high-handed, stiff-necked acts of rebellion and violence against the covenant. Idolatry and fornication attack their respective covenants at the foundation. And all of this is at the background of the word that, that Jesus uses in verse 32. Pornea refers to sins against the covenant, sins which break the covenant, sins which deprive the other covenant member from the protections and enjoyments and blessings of the covenant. So while fornication is absolutely an example of pornea, physical adultery, outright adultery, is a form of pornea. These are clear-cut examples. There are other forms of severe sins against the covenant, which are just and lawful reasons for an offended party to be released from the marriage. If, if your husband strikes you, if he's otherwise physically abusive with you, if he has these irrational outbursts of anger that, that create harm, and if he threatens you physically, the one who is covenanted to protect you, the one who is covenanted to be, be your, your guard and your keeper, if he is a threat, that, I would argue, that is covenant-breaking sin. Our, my protector is now a physical danger to me. That is covenant-breaking sin. In 1 Timothy 5.8, Paul says, a man who does not work, and does not provide for his own, especially those of his own household, he has, he has denied the faith and he's worse than an unbeliever. So a man who is willfully a sluggard and won't keep his commitment to provide for his family is a covenant breaker. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul mentions abandonment as a covenant breaking sin. If a believer, I'm sorry, if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So there are all these ways that, that abandon the marriage. You can abandon the marriage even without leaving the house. Many of these sins that I just mentioned end up being within the context of the church. They end up being church discipline cases. The elders get involved. They call the offending party to repentance. Sometimes the offending party will thumb their nose at the church and we have to take the final step of church discipline. We have to put them outside the church. We have to excommunicate them. And then at that point we say, well, they're behaving like an unbeliever. They're acting like an unbeliever. And now we're in 1 Corinthians 7 territory that talks about how to deal with an unbelieving spouse. In that chapter, Paul calls us to patience and faithfulness. You're not obligated to divorce if you become a Christian and your spouse does not. That's the primary context of 1 Corinthians 7. You're not obligated. God may 
use you, God may use you to bring your spouse to faith and repentance. For that matter, you're not even obligated to divorce if your spouse commits adultery. You're free to exercise patience and grace and forgiveness the way that Yahweh did Israel, the way that Hosea pursued Gomer in the book of Hosea. But if at some point the marriage has been abandoned by the unbeliever, the covenant breaker is recalcitrant, then the scriptures say you're not under bondage. You are free. Divorce is a mercy to the innocent party. Divorce is not the right or the consolation of the offending party. The offending party must repent. The offending party must seek forgiveness and restoration. He has no right to depart. But dissolution of the covenant is for the protection of the innocent and the offended. Now, the point of pointing out the scope of this word, pornea, and all these various forms of covenant breaking, I'm not, I'm absolutely not building into this a bunch of latitude and justification for nonsense, um, casual divorces. Absolutely not. We're not saying that at all. Because this word pornea is not about burning dinner. That's not a covenant-breaking sin. That doesn't threaten the very fabric of the covenant. It's not laughing too loudly or snoring or just being hard to live with. Or if you aren't attracted to him anymore, you're not attracted to her anymore. That's not covenant-breaking sin. No, that's not pornea. This does, however, refer to sins which directly attack the marriage union. Sins which defile the covenant, which corrupt it, or withhold or deprive the other party of the benefits, deprives the other party of the protections and security of the covenant. Covenant-breaking sin is in view, and the word that Jesus uses throughout Scripture encapsulates all of this. God himself would not remain in covenant with a wicked people uh, because there's no possible partnership between covenant-breakers and covenant-keepers. There's no harmony between fidelity and idolatry. There's no meeting in the middle for darkness and light. And also, Jesus' statement here about... Um, Remarriage and adultery, again, in verse 32, he says, whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. That instruction is within his, this context of his correction of unjust divorce. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says that the believing spouse who has a lawful cause for divorce is not under bondage, they are free. And by free, I believe we can infer that they're free to remarry because Paul later on in that same chapter says the very same thing, that if your spouse dies, you are at liberty to marry again. That's the kind of liberty we're talking about, that if they leave, if they've departed, the believer is free, assuming that the believer didn't break the covenant, they didn't sin against their spouse, assuming that the believer is the victim, the fact that they were once married to someone who withdrew the blessings of marriage does not mean that they must remain single for the rest of their lives. That former marriage is dead and they are free to enter into a new covenant with a new spouse. The covenant breaker doesn't have those privileges. The covenant breaker doesn't have those rights. And the unbeliever then, if they do go on and remarry, they're, they're just a serial adulterer. 
But the point is the covenant is for the protection of the righteous. The covenant does not perpetually enslave the covenant keeper to a broken covenant. You're not bound to a broken covenant for the rest of your life if there has been covenant-breaking sin and the unbeliever has departed. So to return to the main thrust of Jesus' teaching, we are faced with all of these problems. We're faced with these sad scenarios and the realities of broken marriages because of the hardness of our hearts. Divorce is the result of resentment and bitterness and ingratitude. It's the result of the lusts that we nurture in our deepest affections. We sin against each other in cruel ways in marriage. We push each other away through anger and harsh words and impatience and this vocalized dissatisfaction with everything, this contempt that just kind of, it's on a simmer all the time. And then occasionally it just boils over onto the nearest person to us, which is our spouse. And then we fail to receive correction. We're unwilling to forgive. We're unwilling to move past past defenses. We keep these catalogs of wrongs and these lists of offenses that we pile up so that we feel justified in sinning against each other. We do this. The only off-ramp from the expressway to divorce, the only exit from disaster is repentance. If you are hard-hearted and if you refuse to humble yourself, if you fail to exercise mercy, if you refuse to demonstrate patience with each other, you are going to end up apart. Some troubled couples are barreling down the road at 100 miles per hour toward disaster. Some are just creeping along at five miles per hour with this simmering cold war of contempt that can last for decades. But either quickly or slowly, you will eventually rip apart, you will tear apart what God has joined together. So how about this? How about instead of pulling apart, whether quickly or slowly, how about instead of ripping apart, we make it the aim of our lives together to press into a closer, more intimate union as husbands and wives to fulfill in every way God's one flesh design for your marriage. God tells a man to leave his father and mother and to cleave to his wife, to give himself completely to his wife and wives to their husbands. So that oneness, that total sharing isn't some vague abstract concept, but that it is a concrete reality so that we devote ourselves to manifest that one flesh unity in a practical, tangible, demonstrable way. How do we do that? Well, there's a few ways that we can think of very quickly. One way to demonstrate that is to develop the art of communicating with grace and truth, not communicating with graceless truth, not by communicating with truthless grace, but in grace and truth, to love each other with our words, to make it our aim to love with words. Adopt the attitude that says, whatever we talk about, whatever we disagree on, 
I am for you. I am not opposed to you. You're not my enemy. Even if we have differences, I love you more than this thing that we disagree on. I love you more than getting my way. I love you more than winning this argument. And I'm going to communicate that love for you and communicate your priority in my life, no matter how deep the conflict or how far we are apart on our perspective. I love you more than this thing. In fact, the way that we handle this thing is more important than the thing itself. The thing itself is not more important than you. This decision, this thing, this route, this plan, whatever, is not more important than our marriage. Our marriage is more important than this. In this way, we press together. We, 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 we move together and not pull apart. Another demonstrable manifestation of your unity in marriage is using in your marriage your mutual complementary gifts to build up other people, to serve, to disciple, to feed, to encourage, to share in one mission together. You are equipped to be more faithful and effective together than apart so that your tightly knit marriage is tactical. It is, your marriage is strategic. It's a force for growth in God's kingdom. You manifest this one fleshedness when you function as a team to build things together or to do things together, you aren't going in separate directions. You aren't growing in separate directions. You are growing up together deliberately entangling your spiritual growth with the growth of your marriage. These things run along similar tracks. They're going the same direction. And your unity becomes a multiplier of your individual gifts. And this happens when you find a mission to work on together and you do it. See, Jesus does this, doesn't he? Jesus is taking dominion over the world, not by himself, but he does it with and through his bride. And our marriages are the reflection of that mission that Jesus is on with his bride. Um, I know we're all very frustrated by the sexual confusion and the chaos in our society. This agenda to deconstruct man and deconstruct woman and deconstruct marriage, it is leading to an absolute societal catastrophe and collapse. If this agenda continues, our culture will not. If this keeps up, our nation is toast. We are done. It is over. You cannot maintain this level of insanity and have any kind of cohesive culture. We're, we're cooked if we keep up with this. And this disaster is leaving multitudes of deluded, physically maimed, emotionally manipulated victims all in its wake. How do we minister to those people? How do we offer them life and comfort in being who they were created to be? How do we fight this war? How do we oppose the damage that is being done to women and children? You think, you think memes is going to do it? You think that's, you know, kind of sharing articles and pictures about it? You think, you think griping to each other about all this weirdness, you think this does anything? What if instead our marriages were unlike anything else in the world? What if our marriages were deeply loyal, uh, fiercely joyful? What if they were formidable bulwarks of Christian hope and faith and love? What if our homes were these stable, peaceful, tender, 
intimate. Our marriages are these one flesh relationships that display this is how you know and are known by someone else. That's what everybody wants, right? They want to be known and they want to know and they want to have that tight-knit fellowship and love with someone else. And we say, this is how you do it. And this is the only way you get it. You only get it in God's spirit and with him. You don't get it apart from him. You can't have it. Only the Holy Spirit can bring us together this way. And if we do this, if we say, this is how you do it. This is how you love and how you knit your hearts together. At the very least, we would create this sanctuary where refugees could flee and say, I don't know what you're doing, but I like it because I can't find anything else like that. I want what you have. Show me, show me how you do this. It rings very, very hollow, though, when we criticize homosexual fake marriages if our marriages are these cold, dead, loveless, passionless arrangements. It's very empty if we have all kinds of pronouncements about transsexuals, but we aren't living as the men and women God designed us to be. If we're not happily functioning in the roles and responsibilities he's created us for, it's all just empty. It's all just words. Yeah, let's absolutely oppose the nonsense. I'm not, a, I'm not against or criticizing opposition to the nonsense. In fact, more of it. I want to oppose the nonsense. All the time, all day, oppose it. But let's oppose it with solid, stable, lasting marriages that show the alternative. Lasting marriages that shine to the glory of God and the worship and praise of King Jesus. Marriages that are a little taste of heaven on earth. I know you want that. I know we all, that's what we want. And this is only possible when we take seriously the first thing Jesus said. And that's when men direct all of their passions, all of their emotions, invest all of their resources and their labor into winning one woman, winning her heart and loving her, put off all forms of adultery, kill the weeds of adultery in your hearts. And when women are openly receptive to the overtures of their husbands to, to do what God says, when husbands lead and make efforts to do what God says, to lead the marriage and to lead the children in faithfulness as women are receptive, men are encouraged to do more and more. And so we're called in order to, uh, for our righteousness to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, we're called to be covenant keepers, to pursue this intimate knowing and loving in our marriages to keep our covenant vows. Be covenant keepers, not covenant breakers. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we ask you by your spirit to preserve our marriages and preserve our lives and keep us by your spirit in covenant. Um, deliver us from the temptation to defile the covenant. Uh, pre prevent us and, and change us and transform us and grow us more and more every day to love you and to uh, love each other as you have created us to in the roles and the responsibilities you have given us. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.